This message is brought to you by IOM America and the International Fellowship of Exchange Life. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I am your ministry host. We hope that the Lord blesses you today as you listen to our podcast. We want to welcome our online listeners this morning and we do want to put out a special uh, prayer request to our online listeners to please pray for the Heartland of Liberia. It is a new church plant we started there. They are suffering some uh, very serious attacks by local rebels. It has literally affected the church, the church people, and uh, they think it's going to affect their vision, but it will not. So, but those of you who are listening online, you need to be praying for the leadership team in Liberia, that they do not become discouraged, but they continue to move forward in Jesus' name. Now as we uh, get into our message this morning, I want to read our opening slide to you. Now, I know the title, Rebellion is as a Sin of Witchcraft, is sounds a little bit dramatic. Maybe even traumatic for some of you. But it is the actual term that is used in the passage in the Old Testament. I believe it is Numbers 14.18 that's coming up here that talks about the... uh, I believe it is quoted to be said that rebellion is as the sin of divination. That's King James. The New American Standard is rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Divination is witchcraft. Divination comes from the root word of division. Satanic division is Satan always causing division in the body of Christ. Satan always causing division and the way he accomplishes that is by throwing a couple snakes on the floor. Remember the story? You see that the whole scene right there where you have the great Pharaoh who was the symbol of the Antichrist of the Old Testament. He'll be back. And then you have his magi, magicians, prophets, fortune tellers. And then you have Moses standing before Pharaoh who is actually Moses' brother. Right? wasn't his blood brother, which is why he's not sitting in the chair. Because Moses was supposed to sit in that chair. That was the spot that Moses was destined to sit in by the great Pharaoh. So there was anger and animosity going on between these two brothers. I just want to give you the scene here. And Moses had already been pulled away and detached from the satanic lineage of Babylon, Egypt. And God had already reformed his mind and transformed his life. And he is now functioning as a true-blooded Hebrew. And now God brings him before this brother who he doesn't want to face. Moses didn't want to do this. He was using everything from the fact that he stuttered to 
incompetence, to whatever he could label this thing, he was basically saying, I cannot, I will not. And God's going, okay, send Aaron, your real brother. Take him with you. He'll do the talking. But I need to have this job done. And he does actually kowtow to Moses' excuse because God was more focused on getting the mission done. And as you know the story, in the end, Aaron doesn't play such a good role, does he? Moses ends up having to step up and take the leadership, which was his original calling to start with. But as he's approaching the Pharaoh on each one of these plagues, there's this dynamic going on between these two brothers. And there's also this spiritual battle going on that even the two of them aren't even quite aware of. See, this passage that we're going to be talking about this morning has been there since the garden. For Eve was not fighting flesh and blood in grapes and apples and kiwis and, and peaches. For she was up against a power of darkness that she wasn't even aware of. If you think that Satan was sitting in that tree dressed in a black robe with blood dripping out of the corner of his mouth and looking as satanic as our Halloween pictures have made him, boy, are you deceived. If you think that's the way he's going to look on the second coming, boy, are you deceived. He's an angel of light. He will be Hitler's picture Perfect human. Probably blonde hair, blue eyes, all the stuff that an antichrist like Hitler clearly explained what the perfect human is supposed to look like. Always found that rather humorous because Hitler wasn't even that good looking. It's because he had Jewish blood. Did you know that? Hitler himself had Jewish blood. It was an identity fight. Just as Moses standing before this Pharaoh, there is a spiritual warfare going on around these two guys and these magi are representing one side and Aaron was representing another and we had leader on leader. And what does the magi do? Throws a couple snakes on the floor. Or there's sticks on the floor and it turns to snakes and the snakes run around like, oh, this is scary. And of course Moses had his stick, the staff. He lays his staff down on the floor and someone please tell us what happened. Moses' staff, snake, ate the other two, devoured them. Now, that's kind of a fun little story we like to tell. And, and, you know, it's very visual and it's it's even cool in the movie. But the truth being said, there was a spiritual conquering moment that neither one of these men were fully able to embrace the level, the statement, 
but the level of God's power saying, I am the conqueror. I devour darkness. I devour witchcraft. Divination. Stuff that separates. God himself is into separation, is he not? Yeah, he's separating the goats from the sheep. The end times, he separates the, the, the shaft from the wheat. The real deal from the fake. I mean, here's a Pharaoh that had authority over pretty much the entire world. Nobody, absolutely nobody messed with Egypt. And God was mixing it up. So here we have our first slide. The rebellion is as witchcraft. And as we review the story of Samuel and the powerful words spoken, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. We see that God abhors the sin of rebellion and stubbornness. This is verified countless times in the Old Testament. And we... and we. Where we see him wiping out a whole nation because of it. Even Israel was not spared from God's judgment over these two sins. Witchcraft and idolatry are the two primary acts of rebellion of Satan himself. Witchcraft, if you break that down, we're going to here in Hebrew, is an act of crafting a replica of something God created. It's like cloning. You're literally crafting, you're using your brain power, your thinking, your science, your resources, your everything to replicate life. That's what Satan has become very, very good at. Will he get to the point of actually producing life? I'm afraid he will. And I'll have to save that for another day of preaching, but there are things going on in science today that you would simply not believe. And the enemy is crafting. He's trying to say, I am a creator. I can replicate you and get rid of all your sins and have the perfect you. That's cloning. Why? Because there's a computer sitting on someone's desk controlling that bunch of human flesh. So the question, I guess, would be who's sitting at the computer table? You say, oh, we'll never get to that point. We're already there. I can tell you stories of stuff they're doing right now. We're already there. But it's just not normal things that you see every day. How clever would it be that you are walking around and you can't tell the difference between a demon and a human? Can you tell the difference between an angel and a human? There could be one in this room and the rest of us wouldn't even know it. See, we don't deal with flesh and blood. 
We deal with the powers of darkness and principalities of the air. And if you don't think that Satan is not crafting ways to deceive mankind of not even knowing who's human anymore, then you need to have your eyes opened up a little bit. It is a part of the end times. This is why he has such a, he being God, this is why he has such a vehemence against such acts. They reflect the will uh, of his enemy and those that follow him, both demonstrating uh, a defiance of God or against God and a denial of his existence and sovereignty in man's affairs every single day. I think the whole issue of attack on sovereigns affects and involves every sentence in the world today. Because if you truly believed in the sovereignty of God and something happened to you, as hard as it was for me to text Lester this morning and say, I know this is horrible, we're going to be on our, our knees before God praying for you, but as hard as this is going to be for you to accept, this was a part of the sovereign will of God. Do not fight flesh and blood. It's not about that. If the enemy can get us caught up in what it is we're seeing, what it is that we're dealing with, with the five senses, he's got us. We've got to get beyond the five senses. And we have to see what it is the enemy is attempting to do with this sovereign situation that drives the enemy absolutely crazy. Do you understand that? The sovereignty of God drives Satan crazy. Come on, guys, can you imagine standing before the throne of God and you finally get your turn to step up to the table because you were standing there for God only knows how long in this long line of the sons of God to appeal to God. You finally get up to the table and you are the archangel who got booted out and you still have to stand in line. I'm in Romans, I mean Job chapter 1, by the way. And he approaches the bench. And who comes up with the idea of ripping into Job? God did. I mean, God says, before Satan can get anything out of his mouth, God says, have you considered my servant Job? For he is more righteous than all that are in the land. Satan's reply was, For I cannot touch him. There's a hedge about him. Drop the hedge. And we'll see how righteous he is. So what does God do? Okay. I'll drop the hedge. You say, what is the hedge? Go look it up in the Hebrew yourself if you have a Hebrew study Bible. And what you're going to find out that that hedge is angelic protection. It's like hand in hand, arm in arm, angels all the way around Job's property and his family. 
and his servants. Well protected. And so God does exactly that. Okay. So he calls the angels back. Step back a little bit. Let him in there. But do not take his life. So that pretty much gave him open open permission to get in there and rip up his whole domain. Now I have done a very, very thorough study on the book of Job and I don't want to get into that right now because that's not our study this morning. So here's our picture now that God calls the angels back and I think Satan thought he heard God said, you can touch everything he has but don't touch his wife. Nothing happened to her. Out of all the studies that I've done on the book of Job, and that's been many, those the word actually mentions that come in to do this destructive damage to Job's family, his farm, and his servants are directly connected to Babylon. Which Egypt, obviously, is the child of Babylon. They still are. It's not over. Keep your eyes on Egypt very closely because it's not over. Pharaoh or Satan or the Antichrist is very upset about what God did in showing his snake, his staff, his presence, his power consumes witchcraft. That's the picture we need to go into as we discuss these following slides, because we need to openly embrace the fact that the battle is already won. It's done. It's finished. The price that was paid for this battle is beyond any human being's comprehension. But we run around, walking around, acting like We are being constantly conquered by the enemy. And the simple fact is, that is a bold-faced lie. We are victors in Christ Jesus. It is done. Function like one. Walk like one. Talk like one. Do you realize that Satan can't even stand near a victorious Christian? Now, when I use his term, I'm using his presence. He's still stuck in the Middle East, believe me. But his demonic forces are not. They were not held under that contract. He was held under that contract. So we got demonic forces to deal with all over the world. But they are his representatives, and they do bear his name, as any good disciple does. So, that is what we're dealing with. And they want you to think that you are powerless. That you're failing. That your life just simply is not victorious. So here is our Hebrew. Here's what we have. To cover, to cover a deed. We don't have a house today, honey. So it is to cover a deed that destroys, which is nailed to the door. This definition is a little bit more intense than uh, you might think. To cover a deed. 
that destroys. Now this is witchcraft. To cover a deed that destroys, which is nailed to the door. It's like someone who lists out all of your dirty laundry on a piece of paper and goes and nails it to your door. That is how they used to do it. But oftentimes it would be nailed to the door of a Jewish Hebrew leader to reveal your sins. Here's what I heard about so-and-so. They committed adultery with Jennifer, John Doe, and then attached it to the rabbi's door. And then the person who, who this list is speaking of is trying to cover those deeds that destroy. They are formulating in their mind a defense. They're formulating in their mind their rationale. And the worst form of deception there is, is when they dig into God's scriptures, God's holy word, and they massage the word of God. They massage the holy scriptures in and around their chosen sins, like adultery, like remarriage, like some of these sins that are very complicated to the people. And so when someone approaches them, they actually use God's word, which is attached to the other side of the door frame. Remember? So therefore, we have a crafty, intelligent mind trying to hide their sin. Stay with me on this. And those of you who live in the Middle East, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They try to hide their sins inside the Holy Scripts. And they can't be found. And if that is not an insult of the way it really is, I really don't know what is. So when you have someone approach you today, and they are just nickeling and diming using the Scriptures to try to convince you that what they did was God's fault. God said it. You want to blame someone... Blame God because God said it. Let me share with you where he said that. And they're using the scripts of God to hide their sin. You have the word of God posted on the door. It's actually on the right side of the door. You have the word of God posted on the righteousness side. And you have this sin list that is put together by someone else. And then when you're confronted about it, you take the list off. And you hide it inside the scripts of God. You know what that does? Makes God guilty of your sin. And that makes me sick even saying that. Like we blame God for the level of divorces and, and horrible forms of idolatry and adultery and other, other, many other forms of sins that don't seem to be a big deal to the church anymore. Why? Because we have cloaked it. We have covered it. We have hidden it inside the rationale of human interpretation of scriptures. It's called the emergent church, folks. Anyone who uses scriptures to prove their point to me, I already put them on the shelf. Scriptures don't need to be proven. 
They are the proof of the truth of God. So let's talk about it. The root of rebellion, man's default, is to function as his own God. Right? Isn't that what Satan wanted to do in the garden? You can be like God. You can be as God. Oh, Eve, you could know the difference between, you know, good and bad. She already did. She was created with a sense of this is not the right decision. But she didn't even know what sin was. See how crafty that is? When God puts out an order and you're faced with temptation, I can assure you, you know, this is not the right thing to do if I break this commandment. And she had that before she fell. Satan knew that, so he had to couch God's his words inside God's word. He had to cover his deed by getting it posted on the door. Craftiness. Well, he wanted her list on the door. And the best way to get the limelight off of you and your sins is to get it posted on someone else's door. It's called the blame game. And that's what most people do when they start to work through their problems. So as we move on here, but a man as God operates in relative contentment until he is put under authority, which is when the man becomes face to face with the real God. Romans 13 makes this very clear to us. Romans 13 says, All authority that is established is established by God. He who opposes these authorities opposes who? God. (laughs) Not Satan. Not that governor. Not that king. Not that municipal, you know, leader. Not that... That isn't who you're opposing. You think you're opposing the officer of the court. You're opposing God. That's Romans 13. But see, the reason why it worked in Paul's day as he was addressing these these, uh, Romans is the simple fact that it was a Hebrew law all the way back to Eve. You see, she was, she was starting to suffer with confusion, which happens right before sin. And as she was suffering with confusion, she was losing sight of one simple principle. Opposing the ordinances of God. Don't touch that fruit. You say, what the law hadn't even been established yet. God is the law. He put the two trees there to establish the law. The law and the Hebrew are the very characteristics of a father. Son, don't put the screwdriver in the socket. It's the law. He is the law of the family. We have the tendency to look at law like it's something that's bad. The the law is beautiful. The law is the character of God. So we go on and we read. When authority crosses the pathway of man with such stubbornness, 
rebellion is sure, is sure to in, ensue. It may not be outward in bitter words or physical resistance. Those who are, uh, those are the visible attributes. Rebellion is as an attitude of the heart, a hardening or stiffening of the will, and a determination to resist what God orders for us, either directly or through uh, delegated authorities. Due to this reality, Satan is constantly at work to dethrone all authorities of God. The only way that he can get you to sin is by dethroning one of his authorities. And the way that happens is to somehow come up with an opinion against an opinion so that you have an excuse to disengage. O slash pinion. Remember the Hebrew for the word opinion? The term oppression comes from the exact same uh, root. Pinion is wings. Satan's original responsibilities was to have his pinions cover the chair. Or he was the chair that covered the throne of God. Pinions, covering of God. To reveal the authority figure was the first sin. O, pinion. O comes from my pinions. Not God's. My pinions. My, me revealing myself. It's like if you can just picture an angel just taking its wings and going, me, (coughs) excuse me, me. It's all about me. Revealing self. You see, Satan was interested in revealing himself to Eve. And then Eve turned around after she fell. She was interested in revealing herself to her husband. And she knew she was naked before he made the decision. And then when he made the decision, he was interested in revealing himself life to others. And then that got into the the boys. Then we had one who wanted to be responsible and and doing the very things the ordinance of God, you know, laid out there for him to do. And then and then there was another brother who wanted to reveal himself. Who was that? Cain. The end result of anyone who wants to reveal himself is murder. Someone has to die. And Cain was not about to have it be him. So when Cain murdered his brother and God brought Abel back under the kingdom, he separates Cain from the family. Cain, as you already know, established the first metropolitan city. The tighter you pull sin in, the more it will manifest. The more you spread sin out, the less it manifests. So the rural communities are what is as much manifestation of sin. 
And in the metro communities, there was a more of a manifestation of sin because of people being so close to each other. That was Cain's descendants. And then there was, someone has to die here. So God, through enough generations that Adam still could see Noah, do you realize that? Before the flood, they could actually see each other. I mean, they lived a lot longer than 70 years back then. But in those generations, there was enough destruction through Cain and separation in witchcraft that was going on that God could only find just a, a chosen few. And he had to kill off the rest. You see that story over and over and over again through the generations. When Moses, for example, getting back to his story, he he was about to be presented with the characteristics of God, the law, and there were all these people that were in turmoil. They were down having a party with Aaron, the spokesman of God. And they built this golden calf and they were having, you know, all these drunken parties and blah, blah, blah. And so the, you think God saw it or was he a little bit surprised by it? He knew exactly what was going on. See, someone has to die. That is always how God does this. Someone has to die. It's what happens in the Battle of Armageddon. Someone has to die today. It's what happened in the garden. For you surely will die. Now I'm going to put the pieces together for you on this. This is very, very critical that you get this. When Moses came down and he saw this debauchery, he saw this going back to the old Egyptian ways that that they picked up while being enslaved by the Egyptians, that slavery is what gives habits. That slavery is what Satan uses to keep you in his camp. He doesn't want you to be repulsed by him. He wants you to be pleased by what he can give you. And so all the Hebrew people were pleased by the nasty, filthy habits of the Egyptians. The opinions being revealed. The always about the self-life. Always your glory. All, everything's gold and silver. Me, 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 me. They loved it. So now they start getting their gold out again. They start melting this down. They make this golden calf and they start bowing down and worshiping a, a piece of gold. And Moses comes down. He sees the whole thing. He sees his own brother, you know, feeling guilty and being a part of the whole deal. And, and the wrath of God that was revealed through Moses. He tosses these tablets and... Someone had to die. 10,000 to be exact. 
And then someone had to die at the latter end of that journey, if you remember correctly, because God said to even Moses, someone's got to die here today, Moses, because you did not do as I asked you. You struck the rock instead of speaking to it. Someone has to die here today, Moses. You shall not enter into the exchanged life. You shall not enter into the promised land because someone must die today. And it's going to be you. I'm not done with you, Moses. All of the mommies and daddies of that slavery must die. Someone has to die here today, Moses. I'm just letting the kids through. Well, Joshua was one of those kids. Caleb was one of those kids. And the two of them took the children of Israel and walked them across the Jordan, built a 12-stone monument, which is the future symbol of the 12 disciples, which is presently a symbol of the 12 tribes, which there is no difference, and then went in and started conquering the land that these squatters were on. And the first one was the Battle of Jericho. Remember that? And then God told them to go around the city seven times, just singing hallelujah. Praises unto the Lord. Why would God ask them to do something so silly? Because the battle was already done. You might as well just start start out your war by by praise. Because it's finished. And sure enough, seven days, seven songs, seven laps. Around a pretty good sized city, by the way. On the seventh day, they were to shout out praise and the walls collapsed. Then they had to go in there and pull their swords out and take the city. With the mandate that don't you bring anything out of that city. Satan attaches himself to material things. And that was evidence of something we were again told in the New Testament. But see, someone had to die that day. The reason why that Jesus says, you murderous generation. This is New Testament now. You murderous generation. Be gone from me. Because someone always has to die. So if it's in a relationship, you have to, you have to kill that, that relationship. Someone has to die. Arguments are killing that relationship. Lack of, lack of unity is killing the church. Because Satan too has to live by the standards. Someone must die today. Rebellion, rebellion, detachment, it's like cutting the Postnatal cord, rebellion. It's a detachment from the life source of God. Someone has to die today. That's what rebellion does. It creates death. Only God has the prerogative to birth and to take life. Give life, take life. Due to the real, due to this reality, Satan is constantly at work to dethrone all the authorities of God. It's how he gets the job done. Now, here's a subtle aspect. There is a subtle, 
subtlety to the rebellious ones that colors the, the rebel in more acceptable tones. But he is a rebel nonetheless. For example, procrastination is the worst form of rebellion. Stay with me on this. Procrastination is the worst form of rebellion, which is a quiet refusal to do what you or what you have been told to do. You see, it's an outward expression of, I'll take care of that for you. And you put it off an hour, you put it off two hours, you put it off a week, you put it off a month. The authority figure is kind of waiting, kind of waiting, kind of waiting. And the end result is, it doesn't get done. When you talk to a procrastinator, here's what you're going to hear. And I've been discipling procrastinators for 40 years. And here's the most common excuse used by a procrastinator. Well, I just don't have the time to do it right. So I'm waiting for the time to do it right. Okay, well, do you know that God uses authority figures to protect you? And if they ask you to do things, it's usually because we want to close off that gap, that chink in your armor where the enemy is able to get in and cause destruction. So when an assignment is given, it's usually to close off that gap. If you put it off a day, a week, a month, two months, half a year, some people years, the enemy has havoc in your life. So all of a sudden you get to the other end of your life and you go, why didn't, why didn't I listen earlier? My life is, in, is, is a wreck. It's a train wreck. Why didn't I listen earlier? Because of the sin of procrastination. It is Satan's most favored sin. I'll get to it tomorrow. Every moment Satan can have with your mind he has more opportunities to breed deception and destruction. Witchcraft. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Satan cannot play with your mind unless you procrastinate the ordinances of God. Do you understand that? He cannot mess with your mind if you are submitting to the ordinances of God. He can't get in there. But as long as you are not, or you are procrastinating, which is not in your head, yes, while you are saying no on the inside. I'm not ready to do this. I cannot tell you how many people I've discipled where they say, well, I'm just not ready for that yet. Who gives you the prerogative of saying when you're ready? I don't need to have my child ready to obey me when they're going to stick that screwdriver into the socket. I don't need them ready. I don't need their hearts prepared to obey. I want them to hand me the screwdriver. Instantly. Immediate obedience protects the body of Christ. Rebels always have reasons for doing their own thing. And for them, reasons that are actually pretty logical to them. God's leadership 
In leaders has nothing to do with the weaknesses of the leader. In fact, he uses the weaknesses of these leaders actually to display his power. You know, we look at Moses and I don't know about you, but I can even watch the movie and go, wow, Moses was such a great man. One of the great patriarchs of the old. He was a bag of flesh. He was filled with fears. He was constantly resisting God. It took almost three generations to get to this man to obey God. This was quite a journey for God. He lived three sections of the Hebrew generations, which is 40 years. The first 40 years, he was the son of Satan. Pharaoh was the image of Satan. The second 40 years, it took God to clean out the stuff from Satan, Egypt, Pharaoh, out of Moses. In that process, he's in the desert. He gets married. He has some kids. He, the refining process. And then the last 40 is when God calls him out to say, we have some work to do. But see, God used him in spite of all of his weaknesses. He even had excuses he used with God. And God just simply would say, okay, take care of that. He's a good speaker. God uses these weak leaders. He doesn't want you just submitting to the leaders that have proven themselves to be good leaders in your life. So one of the most blatant rebellions recorded in Scripture is that of Lucifer, Lucifer, which means angel of light, aspiring to usurp the throne of God, which is obviously resisting the author, resisting the author and perfecter of all of faith. He wanted to have that chair because it was the chair that granted position. God had other plans. Man in his fallen state has followed this method of madness in a step and form type of direction. In other words, Satan put makes a footprint and mankind comes along and puts his foot in that exact same print. There are so many Christians walking around today thinking they're following God, and I'm telling you they are following the footprints of Satan. They have mixed up, chewed up, spit out, twisted, reformed, revisionized, reworked history in such a way that the average person today is not sure if those are satanic footprints or if they're the footprints of Jesus. Well we got a problem on our hands. Because even the footprints of Jesus can be emergent. And then the obvious or overt imprints of Satan can be obviously satanic. So knowing the authenticity of the very life of Christ becomes absolutely critical in this decision. Because rebellion can even have its form of in righteousness. It's called self-righteousness. It can look like Jesus, sound like Jesus, do miracles like Jesus, preach like Jesus. But there's something that's going to happen on the other end of that stick. Do you remember what Jesus says to this group that functions like Jesus, looks like Jesus, sounds like Jesus, performs like Jesus? What does he say to them? Be gone from me, for I know you not. 
That's going to be a shocked group. They're going to be shocked. They're going to be like, what? I preached in your name. I casted out demons in your name. I did miracles in your name. What? Yeah. I don't know yet. You never took the time to know the authentic, real God. You kept putting your footprints in this anti-God and thinking you were walking the Christian life your whole life. God always repeats His answer. You think that the, the whole majority of the world that ended up in the pit of hell and the only few that got saved out of it was Noah and his three sons, which would set up the three branches of the final battle, Shem, the descendants of the Hebrew, Japheth, Europe, and then Ham, Muslim. I mean, then we go into this scene of Abraham and Lot and these two cities that merged together as one power and they were the most defiled cities that ever were. And who gets saved out of it? One family. Did the wife get saved out of the deal? No, she didn't. Why? Because she disobeyed an ordinance of God when God said to her husband to tell his wife, do not turn around and watch bring God watch God bring destruction on this city. And what did she do? She turned around. One ordinance broken. Someone must die. This is so critical for us. And that's not just Old Testament. It's in the last hour of mankind. One, just one decision to follow witchcraft, someone has to die. One decision to obey instantly closes off that gap that the enemy can get in there to bring destruction, death. Obedience is absolutely critical. The issue of repentance is huge. The simple facts are, all of us, when we are functioning as a rebel, we must repent. We must recognize our willfulness, lay down our arms of resistance, and change direction quickly. Secondly, we must realize that the fight is not against human leaders, but against the father of lies. And of course, this is our passage. So, we walk. This is human flesh. We are walking. This is an issue of walking. So, therefore, I need to look very, very intently upon the ground and the footprints I am following. Rebel just doesn't get this passage. And the reason why when we function as rebels, or we really are a rebel, the reason why we don't get this passage is because we think that there's some type of conquering and conquering and arguing. There's, we think there's some kind of conquering in the battles of the person, our spouses and our children and our friends and our community. And so all of our hope, all of our aspirations is in conquering that conversation and conquering that circumstance. We just think, this is it. If I can conquer here, 
then I won't feel guilt. I won't have whatever it is that I'm struggling with. Wrong. Because that is not the battle. How do you know if you're guilty of functioning as, you know, rebels just don't get this passage? Is if the percentage of your daily activity is fighting flesh and blood, you do not get this passage. And there's no way you'll convince me that you do. There is no way. You can nod your head and do this. And on the inside, God and God alone knows you have no clue what this passage means. The only way to find out if this passage truly is authentic inside your life is to put it under fire. It's for God to actually say, well, have you considered my servant Stephen? Put it under fire. Did, did Job have struggles through that? Yeah, well, he had 42 chapters of it, but how did he come out in the end? What, what did the other end of the stick show? It showed the stick of God. It showed the presence of God. Job did come out on the other end of that pile of ashes as a victor. God was right. Have you considered my servant Job because he is more righteous than all the men of, of all the lands? God was not lying to Satan to try to bait him. God was correct. But you read through the book of Job many statements of Job struggling with being righteous in his thinking. Righteous in your thinking is not what makes you righteous. What makes you righteous is the life of Jesus Christ because he is the righteous one in us. Some of the common areas the enemy works on in regard to this trick of uh, witchcraft is in the role of their pastor, mentor, parents, husband, employers, basically any authority that is in this person's life. They start the war going on between this is not a good boss, this is not, 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 not. So they disengage from authority and the enemy steps in and says, thank you. Because he himself has to honor all established authority. Do you realize that? Satan has to stand there quietly until God speaks. He's the greatest rebel of them all. But he has to stand there and be in line just like the rest of them, even though he's the most powerful rebel. He didn't get any privileges because of it. And it was God who said, Have you. Sovereignty rules rebellion. The Romans 13 passage is what we covered earlier. It would be a great passage for you guys to study. So evaluating our attitudes, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to evaluate our attitude regarding authority. Authority is the gateway to spiritual freedom. Authority is the gateway to spiritual freedom. When we embrace God's ordained establishment of authority, we can find a more restful place in submitting to Him directly. You have to think through that one. Since it is true that those who resist governed authority are resisting God, the one who is resisting will find it difficult to obey the living God directly. How do you test a man to see if he is true, authentic? And obeying God is put a strong leader in their life. 
If they resist the strong leader, it is evidence that they're all talk and no do with God. God said it very clear through Peter when the gals were struggling with submitting to these unreasonable men. Peter said this, chapter 2, verse 18, 2 Peter, 1 Peter, you'll have to check. Chapter 2, verse 18, he said, Servants, be submissive to your masters, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are harsh and unreasonable. For this finds favor in the eyes of God when a man or a woman suffers unjustly. For what favor is there if you obey because they do right? But if you obey when they do wrong, for you shall find the favor of God. How do you get the favor of God then? By submitting to harsh and unreasonable authority. That just doesn't go with the Western civilization. We sue them. There are more lawsuits on abuse of authority in this country than there is in any place in the world. Do you know that divorce is a lawsuit? It's called a lawsuit. So when people use divorce as a reason because God himself through Christ Jesus put his little seal of approval on this thing because of adultery, we think we escape from it. No, we don't. It's a lawsuit. And there's a direct order to indwell Christians never to sue anyone. And lawsuit and divorce are the same thing. Go to your judge, he'll tell you they are. So therefore, it's obsolete topic. What's left for this person? The ministry of reconciliation. Working together to, to bring that marriage back together again. Divorce is not signed by God. He said in Malachi, I hate divorce. Divorce comes from two words. Division and force. It's a ripping of the flesh. It's like ripping your arm off of you. That's what it is to God. Since God joins together as one flesh, not like this, He joins it together like this, and it'd be like my skin melting into one blob. And divorce is like this. Ripping it away. Saying you have two individuals again. It's witchcraft. It's a craftiness that the enemy uses to deceive to say you're two separate individuals again. But in heaven you're going to find something a little bit different. A guy that has been married nine times, as one of my counselees has, he's going to have all nine of his wives standing at judgment with him, and a man is responsible for the sins of his family. That's Hebrew. I will be responsible for the sins of my family when I stand at judgment. doesn't mean I'm going to go to hell for him, and I won't because I'm an indwelt Christian. But it doesn't escape me from judgment day. It just gives me my covering. Instead of covering sins, I will be covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. See the difference between witchcraft and Jesus Christ? I am covered with the blood of Jesus not covering my sins that are still active and festering under that skin. 
Satan is very crafty and he's done some horrible things to the scriptures because of that craftiness. Here's our identity statement for today. And then I'm going to have Janie come and read you an article to close off our service today on repentance. It's a profound article that uh, we have been blessed by. We're still in the process of processing it. But uh, we do want to close our service today with that. But here's our identity statement. Identity truly does matter. It is our responsibility to show all those under authority that there is a direct relationship between Godship and rejection. Me trying to play God's job and how I'll end up rejecting you because of it. To reveal all that all rebellion is birthed through those uh, who do weakness or are part of weaknesses. Rebels are attempting to be their own God and they are quick to reject self and others who do not support their twisted views of self-government. If and when this uh, reveal is true for them, we can uh, lead them to repentance with kindness of Christ within us. And as we have noted before, identification in Christ follows repentance, and the ministry of reconciliation follows understanding and embracing one's identity in Christ. So, in other words, once you confess of your Godship, you'll start, you'll stop rejecting your authority figures. Once you stop rejecting your authority figures, you're closing the gap in those chinks in your armor, where the arrows, the fiery missiles of the enemy can get in and start burning away at your flesh. So you'll follow it again. And then once that's done, you, you, you cover it with the identity of Jesus Christ, which happens through the covering of the blood of Jesus. And once you are walking in your identity in Christ, then there's no reason not to submit to unreasonable authority or reasonable authority. Authority is for protection, whether your leader limps or not. God uses the authority to protect. What would have happened if the whole country of Israel, nation of Israel, would have left David when he was in the midst of his sin. You wouldn't sit here today. Did you know that Jesus Christ himself came from the relationship of Bathsheba and David? We wouldn't have Christ. These are significant issues to me with theology. But in us humans, we got to make everyone perfect like Hitler wanted to do before we will submit to them. So we work daily at causing our leaders to be perfect when they're going to let you down in the long run. Because it isn't about the human. It's about the power of God. Just as we don't fight flesh and blood, but powers of darkness around here, well, we don't fight flesh and blood and have to worry about that stuff because God, the power, is in control. Janie, come and uh, share with us about the absolute critical importance of repentance of this stuff. True repentance, the key to family blessing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Of all the recommendations one might make to the father seeking to lead his family, 
or the young woman aspiring to a happy marriage, or the son hoping to chart a victorious course in life, or the wife who desires to honor God as a mother, the most important is the most basic. To have the blessing of God, you must repent of your sin. Success in life is not a function of brilliance or strategy or effort, but of blessing. Those who remain unrepentant should not expect the blessing of the Lord. Unrepentance is not only an impediment to the very object of our life, true unity with God, but it leads to the judgment of the Lord. It is the single greatest roadblock to family vision. But repentance must be sincere. It must spring from godly sorrow. Too often repentance is the experience of offering a half-hearted and self-serving apology to God and man, mixed with large amounts of blame-shifting, pride, and a desire to be done with the whole matter so you don't ever have to deal with it again. It is the, I have said I'm sorry on my terms and in my way, and there's nothing more I need to do, so if it's not good enough for you, you're the one that has a sinful attitude. The Bible describes this attitude as the sorrow of the world which produces death. It is a false sorrow, a self-centered and self-serving sorrow. Evidences of worldly sorrow include fear of bad results, a sense of pressure caused by the consequences of sin, and embarrassment over getting caught. Worldly sorrow may result in partial repentance accompanied by the telling of half-truths at admission of just enough wrongdoing and no more than is necessary. Worldly sorrow is often accompanied by arrogance and pride because at the end of the day, the sinner does not believe his crimes are really all that bad. At least, they're not as bad as the other guy's crimes. This is a sorrow that leaves injured parties worse off because they are expected to accept the apology of one who is at best sorry with qualifications and reservations, unwilling to make the injured party whole. Charles Spurgeon offered this brilliant insight. There is in the world a great deal of sorrow on account of sin, which is certainly not repentance and never leads to it. Some transgressions transgressors are sorry for sin for a time they are convicted of guilt with a transitory conviction which soon passes away many are sorrow, sorrow sorry many are sorry for sin because of its temporal consequences and many more because of eternal consequences they are afraid of hell if there were no hell they would like they would like to continue to live in sin They are as fond of sin as they ever were, but they are sorrowful because they see that it is bringing them down to the gulf of perdition. Now that kind of sorrow is not repentance. A moth may burn its wings in the candle and then, full of pain, fly back into the flame. There is no repentance in the moth, though there is pain, and so there is no repentance in some men, though there is in them a measure of sorrow on account of their sin. Do not, therefore, make the mistake in this matter and think that sorrow for sin is, or even necessarily leads to, repentance. Before there can be family revival, there must be true repentance. And this means not just any sorrow, but godly sorrow. The elements of godly sorrow producing true repentance are these. Number one, brokenness. Godly sorrow comes from a true brokenness over sin, knowing that you have first wronged God and second your fellow man. Those who experience true brokenness over sin are overwhelmed by the enormity of their crime. The man of godly sorrow is not drowning himself in entertainment and parties, self-gratification and superficiality. He is not laughing away his problems. He is not seeking to forget, but to remember his own wrongdoings until he has done what is right in the sight of God and man. 
Such a person is broken because he has sinned against the God who loved him and has given him life. He has betrayed the lover of his soul and now acknowledges the treason of his heart. He has broken the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all his heart. But he has also broken the second greatest commandment, which is to love his brother as himself. The sinner of godly sorrow understands this and is abased and broken. He is deeply grieved that he has injured his brother. He enters into the pain of those whom he has wronged, and his heart is full of compassion for them because of the trouble his sin has caused. A truly repentant man is therefore a humble man who thinks less of himself and more of those he has injured. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28:13. Secondly, forsaking sin. The godly sorrow that leads to true repentance requires that the sinner forsakes his sin. He must go and sin no more. John 8:11. He neither attempts to substitute one sin practice for another, nor to fill the void created by the absence of the past sin with another ungodly dependence. A sinner who who gives up one immorality for another or one form of sin addiction for another remains unrepentant and in bondage. One of the clearest signs of worldly sorrow and false repentance is that, once caught, the sinner simply transfers his sin to another venue. Number three, truth-telling. Spurgeon wrote, True mourning for all sin will make us very jealous over our tongue, lest it should say a wrong word. Those who experience godly sorrow and true repentance will therefore tell the whole truth. They will not play word games or withhold facts that would make them look worse. They are not afraid of looking worse because they are repentant and hopeful of forgiveness, mercy, and a fresh start that comes from receiving a blessing of God on the integrity of their repentance. They will not further their wrongs by slandering others behind their backs or building alliances designed to protect themselves from the consequences of their sin. They will simply, humbly, and completely tell the truth regarding their own faults. In doing so, they embrace the promise that God, of God that he, covereth his sin, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsakes them will have mercy. Number four, acceptance of responsibility. True godly sorrow necessarily requires that sinner to take full responsibility for his actions. He is willing to be vulnerable, to accept the consequences of what he has done, and to place himself at the mercy of God. Paul the Apostle said, If I have committed any anything worthy of death, I demand to die. If you have ever listened to a person repent by making excuses for their actions, shifting blame, accusing others in the process, telling or telling half-truths, you can be sure that this person does not have godly sorrow and therefore is not repentant. Taking responsibility is not only the essence of true leadership, it is inextricably linked to true repentance. Number five is restitution. Those who experience godly sorrow and true repentance will desire to make restitution to the victim. There is a spiritual debt to God himself which they can never repay, but only the blood of Jesus will satisfy. But there is a temporal debt to their fellow man which they must be willing to pay. It is not enough that they will cease and desist from the wrongdoing. They will do whatever is necessary to heal those they have injured by restoring what they have taken. Godly sorrow produces such compassion for the injured party that the penitent man aches to bring health and wholeness to those he has injured. Six, there is peace. The man who experiences a godly sorrow unto repentance desires to live at peace with those he has injured, and all the more so when sin has brought strife and division between fellow believers. 
As he desires reconciliation with God, so too he desires reconciliation with his fellow man. It is folly to speak of reconciliation with God, but to reject your brother, because the one necessarily leads to a desire for the other. It is the command and stated will of God that we seek peace within the body of Christ, which is why a sinner who grieves over his sin will go to great lengths to seek peace with those he has injured. With all of this in mind, stop and think on your hopes, your dreams, and your aspirations for life. Think on your children, future children, your husband, your wife, your work. Think on all that you hold dear, most importantly, in your soul. Everything depends on the blessing of God, which you may not presume to receive while you continue in the arrogance of false repentance, which is sister to worldly sorrow. But oh, what hope we have according to the infinite mercies of God and the love of Jesus Christ when godly sorrow fills our heart, leading to a true salvation and the hope of a new beginning. We want to thank you for listening in on our podcast today. This message comes to you by way of a podcast feed from Heartland Family Fellowship, a family-integrated church, which is an outreach of IOM America, right here in Sterling, Kansas. For more information about our church or international ministry, log on to www.iomamerica.org. And if you would like to connect to our fellowship, log on to www. HeartlandFellowships.org It's our prayer that the mind of Christ in you draws you into a deeper walk with Him.